Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 96, recorded September 8th, 2012. Yes, so our 37th 90s episode. That's almost half. Wow. <laughs> I think we've made a tremendous amount of progress in reading, enjoying, and reviewing many of these DC comics. Yeah, I'm really liking the 90s. Yes, uh, and I prefer to think of it as the glass half full. We're half-ish through, and I don't want to think about the other half, except for the uh, narrative joy that it will bring me. <laughs> What's that? Oh, they're going to be good comics, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought, thought that was sarcasm there. No, 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 no. Although, like most things, you know, some are hit and miss. You know, some are not always the best ones going. I think that this particular arc, I like it. Three-issue, full-story arc. And uh, I pretty much like it. Right. I think these are pretty good. Nah, I'm enjoying them. And yeah, yeah these three issues here, you know, they're not the, they're not earth-shattering issues, but they're good. Yes. They're not. They're no best of both worlds, but they're pretty good. But they're better than uh, what was the last one? Uh, you know, Jordy. one. Jordy's little eye eye kid. Uh, oh, the eye kid one. Uh, yeah, I think was the I think that was the title, Jordy's little eye kid thing. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. So yeah. So the, these are good. Last week's eh, a little bit of a mixed batch. So yeah. No, these these are good, and it brings back some characters from you know Star Trek Five, which is always good. Uh, yes, you like those two. <laughs> I don't you like really. Claw. I thought you said you liked Claw before. Yeah, I like him. And his first officer wife. Are they married? I know they're definitely I, lovers. They are. They are an item. I assume they were, but you're right. They don't actually come out and say it, at least not in these issues. And I don't remember that coming up in the movie. So. Yeah, it's definitely not in the movie. Anyways, shall we uh, just jump into it? Or we have any Please. housekeeping? I, I have no housekeeping. But well, you're the guy who's on top of that stuff, usually. Well, I mean, uh, you know, this is going to be several weeks out of date, but... You know, this is the uh, anniversary of Star Trek this weekend. Oh, right. So, as uh, as is celebrated by uh, Google Doodle. Google Doodle. You don't have to go to Google Doodle to celebrate, you know, the what, 47 years, 46 years? I think it's 46, but it could be 47. 46. No, I think you're right. So, so I was thinking about it the other day. Look at all the great stuff that came out in the late 60s that is still pertinent to today yeah you have a list no this is just totally off the top of my head but it just seemed <laughs> odd that you know this year 2012 celebrated the 50th anniversary of spider-man next year celebrates the 50th anniversary of doctor who and then in a couple of years we'll be celebrating the 50th anniversary of star trek just uh it's kind of cool yeah 2001 a space odyssey i think came out in 69 there you go um some great landmark science fiction stuff. 
all ramping up to you know the end of the 70s when we'll have the, the anniversary of 50th anniversary of Star Wars. <laughs> right. <laughs> 70, 76? Is that when Star Wars came out? 76, 77, somewhere around there. Yeah. yeah. Another Superman, the motion sci-fi picture came franchise. Out 78, I think. Ah. Christopher Anyways. Reeve, yes. He yes. he still is, for me, the best Superman. The best? The best. Even though I grew up watching George Reeves. <laughs> yeah, well... Christopher is the best Superman, as far as I'm concerned. I will, we'll, since he's we'll, the one that I grew we'll up with. we'll see how I'm the new gonna, guy... Yeah. We'll see how the new guy does. I, th- I think Superman is kind of weird, because, you know, unlike like James Bond and other characters that have been portrayed by multiple people in multiple different movies, mm-hmm. you know, because Superman is, is a vi- from a visual medium, you know, you see him in the comic books, it's not just like you read a book about that person. So right. you, know, you have all these pictures of what Superman's supposed to look like, and then you right. see it on, on screen. So it's like funny how every incarnation, every actor who's played Superman, to me is spot on for a particular part of Superman. Like, you know, I think uh, Dean Cain was was perfect for his Clark Kent, you know, even though right. I didn't like his Superman at all. But he his Clark Kent was just so good. And then Christopher Reeve, I think, nailed Superman, but I don't like the, the dorky Clark Kent, so... Oh. <laughs> yeah, you mean the old, uh, where, uh, where Reeves is always kind of like uh, hunched over and bad posture and stuff when he's... Well, that part I don't. And then when he becomes really... Superman, he just takes the glasses off, and then he stands up straight, and he gains about a foot in stature. Yeah. Now that part I liked. It's the, I, I like that, but I I don't like how he, he knocks over everything, and he's tripping, and he's you know all that stuff. <laughs> I, I don't. Like a little that. overboard. Yeah. Yeah. Well. But yeah, his transformation when he just takes the glasses off and sets up straight is awesome. Yeah. Changes his voice. Yep. I thought that was very good. Anyway, is this a Superman podcast? Because if so, I, I, I brought my wrong notes. <laughs> well, why don't you go get them while I do the synopsis for issue number 46? Ah, oh, sounds good. Let's do it. It's titled Deceptions, Part 1, Coup d'etat. Published date is early May 1993, and the creative team is made up of Howard Weinstein, the writer, Rod Wingham, penciler, Arnie Starr, inker, colorist Tom McCraw, letterer Bob Panaha, Editor Alan Gold. The cover shows Savick pulling an unconscious and bleeding Spock out from under wreckage in a burning room. Her face shows the physical strain in lifting Spock, and perhaps, might I say, fear over the life-and-death situation they are in. The story opens on an alien world. First we see a small set of islands in a large backdrop of ocean. Then we move beneath the water. We see a large submarine reminiscent of the sea view with multiple large fish that look sort of like sharks next to it. Inside the submarine, a mutinous crew talks about how they have taken over the sub relatively easily. They go on to state they are the first wave of a government coup with a larger force coming in behind them. They are confident they will take over the government. They mention how the Federation emissaries will get caught in a storm the likes of which they have never seen before. Har, matey. Elsewhere on the planet, Spock, Savick, and Ambassador Berg are meeting with representatives of the Mardelva government, 
concerning increased ties with the Federation. In Savick's log, she records the Mardelva interests in increasing Federation ties likely stems from their proximity to the Klingon Empire. They claim they have had increasingly hostile encounters with the Klingons in neutral space. Captain Spock and the Enterprise are there to investigate these encounters as part of standard Starfleet procedures, but the Mardelvans interpret it as doubt as to their word on the matter. Spock takes the lead, explaining that the investigation will allow them to gain important tactical information about the area of space in question, should Starfleet be called upon to defend Mardelva. The Mardelvan representatives accept that explanation, but also point out that their space and sea ships are second to none in military capabilities. Where they are at a disadvantage is in the number of ships they have. They cannot hope to stand against the resources of an entire empire. The Mardelvans go on to say that Klingons are also stoking the fires of Mardelvan revolution. They are arming and in other ways supporting a rebel element in the Mardelvan population. The rebels do not believe the Federation will come to their aid in time of need, so they want to take over and strike an alliance with the Klingon Empire. Meanwhile, in the waters close to their location, the Sea View, I mean the rebel-controlled submarine, breaks through the water's surface in a very cool Sea View kind of way. They fire missiles at the city where the talks are being held. Ensign Michaels, who is stationed by the Enterprise shuttlecraft Spock's party took down, signals to Mr. Spock pertaining to the missile attack he is witnessing. Spock tells him to ready the shuttle for departure. The Mardelvan Prime Minister is confident they will put down the rebels' attack, but for their safety he suggests that the Starfleet contingent fly their shuttlecraft to the Mardelvan Orbital Station, since the Enterprise has yet to return for their pickup. She assures Savick it is a secure location until the situation is brought under control. The Federation party proceeds to the shuttle, and on their way up, signal the Enterprise for an emergency pickup. As they approach the station, Savick notices a ship with Klingon characteristics is moving quickly away from the station and being chased by Mardelvan government freighters. The rogue ship is heading straight for the Federation shuttle. Spock and company buckle up and take evasive action. The shuttle is hit by a powerful force field that knocks out the shuttle's systems. As the rogue ship passes and the pursuing government fighter craft pass them by, the Federation shuttle begins to descend towards the planet. They are able to regain minimum navigational control with intermittent power. Their only choice is to enter the atmosphere and attempt an emergency landing, preferably on dry land. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is conducting the survey of the sites claimed as conflict, uh, as where conflict Meanwhile, the Enterprise is conducting a survey of the sites claimed to be places where Klingon conflict took place. They receive the emergency recall signal from Savick. Kirk gives the order to set course for Mardelva, warp 7. But before the order can be carried out, four Klingon birds of prey decloak in front of them. Kirk's orders change to shields up, yellow alert. Back at Mardelva, Spock is attempting to glide the shuttlecraft past mountain ranges to land on as large a stretch of flat open land as exists on this small island beneath them. 
He is successful, but it is a brutal landing, and the shuttle is a wrecked pile of smoking bent metal when it finally comes to rest. Meanwhile, Kirk is told the Klingon group leader is hailing them. They open a channel and see the Klingon commander is none other than Klaa. Kirk insults Klaa by stating he does not know who he is since all Klingons look alike to him. Klaa reminds him who he is and how he hunted Kirk down beyond the great galactic barrier. Kirk flipply states as he recalls that he had gotten away that time. Klaa and his first officer wife state that in open space, no one would blink twice if they destroyed the Enterprise. At the crash site, Savik is the first to come to. She sees Spock is out and severely injured. Ambassador Berg survived, but one of his staff is dead and the other is badly hurt. Ensign Michaels is hurt, but can move on his own. They all move out from the burning shuttle except for Savik, who is attempting to pull Spock from the wreckage knowing full well the shuttle may explode at any minute. She is able to use her impressive Vulcan strength to pull Spock over her shoulder just and get just far enough away from the shuttle when it explodes. Meanwhile, Kirk is having a lovely discussion with Claw, who first says Kirk's very presence is an act of hostility. When Kirk points out that they are in free space, clearly outside of recognized Klingon boundaries, Claw backs off, saying they are dangerously close to violating the Klingon defense perimeter, and they should consider this fair warning. His first officer wife, Vixus, chips in. Provoke the Klingon Empire at your peril. Kirk says he will keep that in mind then defiantly tells them to keep in mind that the Enterprise is in free territory and they have as much right to be here as the Klingons. Claw angrily says Kirk will be watched. Kirk says Claw can watch all he likes, but for now, get the hell out of my way since I have a distress call to answer. The Enterprise streaks back to Mardelva. The end. Yes, so, a little run-in with the Klingons, the neighboring Klingons. Yep, Claw. Captain Claw, or is he Commander Claw? I don't Maybe know. It doesn't matter. I'm not sure what he is. They don't, I always they don't call actually... him Captain, so he—he's definitely the head of that ship. Definitely. Yep. And and he reports only to the Commodore, so I would think that he's a, a captain. captain. There you go. I may be uh, showing my ignorance here, but what is this ship you keep talking about? The Sea Dew. <laughs> The sea do. <laughs> <laughs> the sea view from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. The sea view. The you you sea never view. seen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea? Mm. Okay, so with with, m- with Captain brief. Nemo. Or that's twenty <laughs> twenty thousand leagues. So I, you're being funny about this? No, I'm really not. Oh, okay. Well, definitely, it is not twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Yeah. So in the early '60s, there was a a movie. Uh, I think Walter Pigeon starred in it and a few other folks. And it was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And it was a science fiction thing. They basically took the idea of that was going on then, which was nuclear submarines, and they put it they projected it out into the future a bit. So this was supposed to be like ten years into the future, fifteen years, whatever. And it centered around the exploits of a US Navy nuclear submarine that was very advanced 
called the Sea View. So that was the name of the of the ship. Hmm. And many characteristics of the Sea View, especially the front of it, where it's almost got kind of like a, a manta ray kind of um, bulging on the front of it, you know, the front snout of it. Right. Uh, very much like this submarine that's been taken by the by the rebels. Uh, it, it has it has the same cues. So it was a, a good. I thought it was a good movie, and then they turned it into a TV show. Huh. And what was it called again? Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So they they had a lot of the same characters, but different actors. <clears throat> so they right. had a Captain Crane. They had an Admiral. Admiral. I forgot the Admiral's name, but whatever. It was pretty cool. So actually, in a lot of ways, the Admiral who was who was strategically in charge of what was going on reminds me a bit of uh, Picard. And then Captain Crane, who was in charge of the vessel itself, he reminds me a lot of Riker. Mm. Uh, so, you know. Anyway, so it was uh, it was by the same people that did um, Lost in Space. Oh, okay. So it was good at first. I, 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 think, I think the show was good at first because it took itself seriously. Then it took a definite schlocky kind of uh, Lost in Space turn for things. You know. Space aliens and, you know, whatever. It was like Monster of the Week. It right. became eventually. But in the early episodes, it was pretty cool. It was even kind of um, Cold War kind of spy kind of stuff going on inside of it, too. So, well, whatever. But this is the Star Trek comic book review. The last right. thing I'll say is that when the Sea View used to come break the surface of the water, it did it in a very dramatic, unlikely way, where it would come out at about a 45-degree angle and come out of the water, and like like 40% of it was out of the water, and then it would kind of plop right down. You know, uh, the front would plop down, and it would be, uh, you know, horizontal in the water. Right. Which is, which is patently ridiculous. <laughs> no submarine is going to do that. But it was very dramatic, you know, how it broke the water and everything. And it and it seemed that's the way that this sub came out of the water, too. So right. I, think, I think they were channeling a little uh, Sea View stuff there. Well, I am looking at the Gold Key comics uh, for Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. There was a 16-issue run. Oh. And a couple of the covers do have this the sea, sea view. view. Right. S-E-A-V-I-E-W. Sea View. And, I mean, you nailed it. That They, they look exactly the same. Even, like, having the double fin in the back. Uh, that this can't be that can't be a coincidence. Yeah, I, I agree, and and that's fine. I mean, I because there are differences. It's just that it it's very similar to the Sea View. So that's cool. That's fine. Yeah, no, it's cool that I mean they're obviously playing an homage to that. Uh, I would. That's that a ship. good. That's a good word. I, I think that's what they were intending, not a ripoff. Yeah. No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think it was a ripoff. Yeah, that's pretty. cool. Cool. I, yeah. I I did not catch that reference, uh, you know, being that I never saw that show, but well, I totally see it. When it came out, I would. It, I, I'm not sure if it came out in '64, '65, something like that. It right. Was, and I, I was trying not to call you old, but if you want to really point it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw it in reruns because I think I was like two years old when it came out or something. But yeah, I saw it in reruns. But it, it's yeah, it was good. It was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Right up there with Star Trek? 
Well, yeah, Star Trek, Lost in Space, uh, Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea, you know, all those kind of things I used to really be. Now, I've I was never heard you say anything favorable towards Lost in Space. Oh, when I, oh, hold on. And we don't want to, we, we want to get on with the, with the issue. But, <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I used to love Lost in Space. Oh, but okay. then, as I think I said before, you, you look, when you remember back to how you looked at things when you were a kid, and then you go back to them, just for memory's sake or whatever, uh, right. when you're an adult, things look different. Mm-hmm. And definitely <laughs> Lost in Space looked very different to me. And uh, and I think Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea, definitely the later episodes, uh, are similar because it got schlocky. It got, you know, uh, right. it's like, you know, it's just a little too stupid. Um, mm. but, but it was great for what it was, and I loved it when I was a kid. Sure. Cool. Just not that much now. Well, thank you, Ken, for teaching me something about this ship. Well, it it if you if they do show episodes like on YouTube or something like that, uh, especially if it's an earlier episode, it might be worth a look. Or okay. maybe they've got it on uh, you know Netflix or something. They got a lot of old TV series on Netflix. Right. Right. Okay. All right, maybe we can talk about it later when we review these Gold Key comics. <laughs> I know how much you love Gold Key. I love Gold Key. Anyway. All right, so cool. All right, so um, they're on that last page of this issue. Right. Where, you know, Kirk is telling the Klingons to go, you know, where, and then he, he races off. Right. Um so Sulu's gone and Savick's gone. So there at the navigation station, there's a, a blonde woman. Yes. Uh, I don't know who she is, but I just want you to kind of remember this picture. Okay. Or something that I'll talk about in a couple of issues. Oh, okay. But in this episode. This episode, right? Okay, fine. Yes. Uh, she is. Uh, she's got her hair slicked back, combed back, and she looks like she's in good shape, of course, and she looks fairly attractive. Yes. Yes. Okay. You, okay. you 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 obviously hit all the high points right there. <laughs> okay, good. There you go. No, she just looks remarkably like somebody later on, and I'm wondering, you know, are they if supposed the to be person. related or supposed to be the same person or what? Ah. Yep. Anyways, and then uh, behind her is that one of those cat people like Merez? I don't know, but it's you know it definitely is a cat person. Okay. A, li- a little liony look to him, maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Big old head of hair. Right. So how'd you like seeing the Galileo back? For its final voyage? <laughs> Another final voyage. They keep on beating up on Galileos. But well, this I is was the... just wondering that. Why do they keep calling them Galileo 7? I mean, I understand what Galileo 7 was, but... Right. Well, this is, Gal... just... this is Galileo 5. I thought they called it 7. Well, not in this one. Oh, okay. Never mind then. It's the Galileo 5. Rather than the Galileo 7. And, and, and as far as that numbering sequence, um, I guess it could be whatever they want it to be in a particular TV show or comic. But that does re, re, that numbering does refer to the shuttles that are on the ship, right? Not necessarily, oh, this is... Yeah, it has to be. Because it's five instead of seven. Right, okay. So, uh, you know, so this is the fifth shuttle that the Enterprise has, and they just... Uh, and its name is Galileo. Okay, fine. I answered my own question. <laughs> I mean, unlike the unlike the Enterprise, you know, A, B, C, D, 
that numbering se- sequence is not specific to the name of the shuttle. Okay, fine. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I thought that it was. I was getting a little confused myself. So. Cool. Well, I thought, I, I thought I, it was seven. I I just automatically read Galileo seven when I looked at it. So. Well, I'm but pretty sure. You're right. right. That looking, you know, at some of the shots they showed of the shuttle, and there were a fair number of shots, you know, as they were doing the whole thing where the ship is trying to go towards the space station. I think it had five on the on the hull. No, it definitely does. So it was interesting they chose to bring the Galileo back. Cool. Spock, Spock should never get into a shuttle with the mm-hmm. name Galileo. That's that's it. Yes. Yeah. He so, Spock, we want you to go down to the planet uh, with the diplomatic folks, and why don't you take the Galileo? Captain, could I have another ship? Yeah, why are they all called Galileo? That's what I was going to get at. Oh, well. Well, they're not all called... Oh, that Spock... Pl- <laughs> that Spock uh, pilots that ultimately, uh, you know, gets them into trouble? Uh, yes. Right. Good question. Yeah. Me. Me. Anyways, so I know I thought I, I know after the the crash and Savik and Spock are really hurt and stuff. I still got to say that the green stream of blood and of course they you know what copper based blood or something right right so they have green blood. I gotta tell you uh, the little stream of blood coming out of Savik's nose on page nineteen twenty one and twenty two looks a lot like snot. I just gotta mention that. I know it's blood, but it just it's so green. That's one of the things that I liked so much about this issue. Yeah, is well, at least they were accurate. I like that. I'm, and, and I understand that. I'm just saying, it just looked a lot like snot. <laughs> uh, well, I get what you're saying. I, just, I was just, but I, I had a note that I really liked that they actually showed showed it. Yes, I agree. And it's not just, you know, black or whatever, like it usually is. Or even red, as we've right. seen in previous issues of Spock's Blood. Which you pointed out, Mr. Observant. So, anyways. No, I didn't get the snot thing until you just said it. So, to me... Yeah, well, look at it. I, I see it now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, intellectually, I was saying Vulcan green blood. Uh, <laughs> then the little uh, five-year-old in you was like, he's not... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's anyway. Funny. I think Rod, I think the penciler uh, Rod Wingham did an excellent job sh- drawing the shuttle crash. Uh, it spinning in over in. Yep, and then I especially like when it exploded with the big kablam. Love that. Yeah. No, I thought there was a lot of good, you know, like it even spinning around the ship, which I don't think we do. We know what the name of the ship is yet. Uh, not in this issue. So I thought I thought a lot of that aerial stuff was actually pretty good, where it's like zipping right in front of it. Yep. And then it falls into the atmosphere. No, I thought the artwork was really good. Yeah, I think so too. I guess we can talk more about the the, the mystery ship in the next issue, but I have a few things to say about it. As do I. Excellent. Excellent. Anyway, so what what was that guy who died? The um... uh, in the crash. Yeah, what he was of... he was just some random uh, diplomatic guy. He was in the uh, ambassador's party. Right. Yeah, so they had like uh, well, at least two or maybe three people besides the ambassador 
in the diplomatic right. party. But I mean, I, I never caught what his function was. So, and then, wow. especially in the next issue, his death is kind of like, eh, he's dead. Which yeah, I thought was well. a little odd. I'm like, uh, you just lost to somebody. That should be a little more upset yeah. about. Exactly. Well, as soon as I saw uh, the ensign guy standing guard by the uh, shuttle, right, I was thinking to myself, oh, he's going to die. I mean, everybody's got a red shirt, but he's going to die. Does he have a red turtleneck? Well, whatever. <laughs> the main thing is, I, th- I thought that guy's going to die. And especially when it started crashing, I was like, yeah, this is where that guy dies. It's like, oh, oh, he survived. Oh, a diplomatic person, an even less important person died. Okay, fine. <laughs> but somebody has to die to prove the seriousness of the situation. Right. You got to have that. Exactly, as a guy had described to us very clearly on uh, Galaxy Quest. Which guy? Oh, 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 on on <laughs> Galaxy Quest. Yes, that was classic. Love when he said that. Get out of here before a guy gets killed. <laughs> oh yeah, keeping the joke going with Sigourney saying that. Yeah, that's good. That's great. That's great. Anyway. It was good. All right, what else you got? Because that's actually my last comment. I really like the cover. I don't think I ever actually said that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like it, too. You know, Her face it, looks a little weird, but I I, I like the cover. I, I think it looks weird, too. Uh, and like I said in the – or tried to say in the synopsis, it's like obviously it's effort, you know. Maybe Spock's been having a few too many Twinkies after his plow makes soup. I don't know. But the look on her face is obviously effort mixed with something else. Mm. Is it fear? Who knows? And then my last comment is seatbelts. Seatbelts. <laughs> they do exist. They do have them. And to follow up on that point, what happened to inertial dampers? Okay. So you've got inertial dampers in here, and this is hearkening back to the physics of Star Trek. Very, very good book. If you guys haven't read it, out there. Inertial dampers are absolutely critical in a spaceship that goes the kind of speeds that the Enterprise does, or shuttles, for that matter. The thing is, if you've got inertial dampeners that magically do everything it's supposed to do to keep you from basically becoming an ink splot on a wall inside uh, if the ship is is jostled, wouldn't that also apply to, to people like in a seat or something? It's like, whatever. Yeah, but I think it's the sudden, sudden uh, movement that... That's why you need the uh, seatbelts. Well, but supposedly inertial dampeners are supposed to cover that. Anyway, let's let's not turn it into, into that discussion. <laughs> but I'm just saying. No, you're absolutely right. Yes, and I do agree with you. Seatbelts. Seat, I mean, they, at least they had seatbelts on in Star Trek XI movie. Well, they got seatbelts here in this, this, this issue, in the shuttle. He tells them to put his seatbelts on, and, and it yep. shows him wearing one. Oh, okay. Yeah, but then when they actually crash, they seem to have evaporated. Uh, I don't think so. I think that's the reason why only one guy died. Okay. Then why'd he die? Even if you're wearing your seatbelt, doesn't mean you're going to live. Did you not see how bad that shuttle was tore up? Uh, I agree. I agree. Okay. Cool. Anyways. So, um, at this point in the issue, I had just written down some notes where I was already calling into question Mardelvin's. You know, are the Klingons really harassing them? 
Is the government trying to bring the Federation in on false pretenses to help with the Civil War? Uh, you know, at this point in the in the reading of the story arc, I had a lot of questions. Anyway. And some of those questions will be answered. Yes, they will. Perhaps in the next issue, 47? Or the next. You might have to wait. Okay. <laughs> um, just Did you also have a note about the coolness of thinking about underwater craft and that you <laughs> hope to see them again? <laughs> no, I didn't write that down. I thought it. I thought, well, that was actually cool that they acknowledged that there's underwater craft in. I did hope to see them again so that, that, you know, those first few pages would have some further relevance in the story. Right. Not not to spoil anything, but it doesn't. Right. And because this Mardelva appears to be a mostly water planet, I mean, way mostly water planet. Every time this shows it from a distance, it looks like there's a lot of water and very little land. It makes even more sense why they would have have a, a significant subs involved or, or ship going fleets. And right. in fact, I mean, they, they look like they're aquatic people. Yeah, they look kind of fishy. Yeah, so kind of fish exactly. So I didn't describe what they looked like, but they do kind of look like fishy folks. For those of you that may not have the comic. Yeah, they're whitish, greenish skin tone. Looks like they might have some gills or gill slits of some sort. Right. Uh, Large eyes. Yep. All right, so you uh, ready to jump into the next one? I'm ready. All right, so this is issue number 47. came out in late May of 1993. So uh, we are in the bi-weekly time again, really cranking out the Star Trek books. All right, so uh, this one is entitled... Deceptions, Part 2. So all the uh, writing staff is the same, so I won't go through that. So the cover shows some headshots of Kirk, McCoy, and Scotty. Uh, so they grace the bottom half of the page. And the upper part of the page shows a destroyed space station and some floating bodies uh, with the greenish skin color that we were talking about earlier floating around in the vacuum of space. And then there's a little blurb that says, A trail of havoc straight through the neutral zone. So the Enterprise is en route to Mardelva, and they have been unable to contact the missing shuttle. They do receive a communication from the Mardelvan government. The government has crushed the coup, and it is now safe for the Federation to beam down. Kirk and his away team beam down, and the carnage of the planet is incredible. There are bodies of Mardelvians lying around everywhere in, in some very unnatural angles, so the violence was extreme. The Mardelvians suggest that Kirk's priority should not be to find the missing shuttle, but instead to search for this stolen EX-300 ship. They go to a boardroom, and the crew is treated to some footage of the new ship. It is every bit the Defiant from Deep Space Nine. It's a small, wedge-shaped ship. Uh, its nacelles are hidden somewhere within the ship itself. Uh, it has some very advanced weaponry and also a state-of-the-art cloaking device, much more advanced than the Romulans or the Klingons' cloaking devices. The Mardelvians fear that if this ship was given to the Klingons, it will tip the balance of power forever. Kirk and his crew return to the Enterprise, and they are contacted by Admiral Yankotsky. 
Admiral Yan Koski, who agrees with the Mardelvians that the Enterprise needs to find that ship. Aboard the Klingon Bird of Prey, Captain Claw is sitting in his command chair, thinking that it's unfair that he'll only be able to kill Kirk once. He is then informed by his beloved First Officer Vixus that Commodore Creaser's ship has decloaked near them. The Commodore reprimands Claw for his actions, uh, being preoccupied with Kirk and not about wh- what the ship is and why the Federation is so interested in it. Somewhere near Mardelva, Spock awakes to find Savick sitting near him. He learns that all but one person survived the shuttlecraft. Savick then sets out to find water and provisions. One of the crewmen tries to accompany her, but he is too injured and she goes it alone. Claw departs from the Commodore, and they head out to follow the Enterprise as it leaves Mardelva. On the Enterprise, Scotty and Kirk discuss the power of the small ship. Scotty agrees that it's a very deadly ship. They are interrupted with the familiar to wee Ahura requests Kirk to return to the bridge. When he arrives, the screen is filled with wreckage of a destroyed space station. The onboard Mardelvians suspect that it is the work of the EX-300 and the crew of traitors aboard her. Back on the Klingon Bird of Prey, Claw and Vexus are fighting with blades as they discuss what they have overheard between the communications between the Enterprise and Mardelva. They now know how powerful the ship is. Just as it looks like they're going to turn their physical fight into something much more intimate, they instead decide it's time to eat, and they sit down at a table filled with cooked animals and start to dig in. On the Enterprise, Scotty and the Mardelvian engineer are trading compliments with each other. Uh, That's when the engineer is pulled aside by the brigadier that's also with her, and he berates her for getting a little too friendly with the human. Savick returns to the survivors and informs them that there's a cave about an hour away that they can take shelter in. The Enterprise finds another destroyed outpost, and they set a course that will lead them into Klingon space. Claw, aboard his bird of prey, continues to follow, and he declares that he will destroy the Enterprise as soon as it crosses the Klingon border. To be continued. So Claw is kind of one note, and he's really used for comedic value, I think. Completely. Both of them are. Right. Which, I, I, you know, Peter David started it using Claw as kind of a, you know, a, a comedic foil. Right. So it's kind of weird that Howard Weinstein is kind of bringing him back just to kind of do the same thing. Yeah. Some, one of my comments after the third issue is basically at this point – it's really hard to take Claw seriously for anything. Uh, he's just great uh, comedy fodder. H- him and Vixus. Right. And I thought and, it was especially good when you had mentioned when they're fighting knives and stuff. And he says, and now, Vixus, my blood runs hot. And then she says, my hunger must be satisfied. And then they go to eat. Right. I mean, that, that's pretty that, funny. I mean, right. it, it, you know, it works. It's just it's hard to take him seriously as a threat. But. Well, it's hard to take him seriously when he's sitting there at his command chair going, oh, I hate that I could only kill Kirk once. Yep, yep. <laughs> there, too. <laughs> Multiple places. Come well, on. when he gets – oh, has he been kicked out of bed yet? 
Uh, no, that's next issue. Okay, so I'll, I'll hold back on that comment, but, but yes. that's another time. It's silly. Yeah, I, I get it, and it's kind of funny. So on on one one hand, I kind of think it's funny, but on the other hand, it I don't I don't like it. It makes it yeah. too slapsticky. Yeah, yeah. So and, uh, and, the, you know. and the whole dinner thing, I did I didn't think that was funny. Oh, I. I thought it I mean was, the fighting but... was funny. I mean it was kind of cool that they're, you know, you're getting the you're getting to know what the Klingons know through this little interchange while they're fighting. Right. But then they just start eating and it, it was just kind of, I don't know. It was okay. obviously a joke, but I didn't think it quite worked. Okay. But you liked it? I liked it. You know. I, I thought it was pretty good. Although obviously <laughs> it's such a blatant joke. I mean, yeah. I mean, th- 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 this is where you really, uh, where I found it funny, and I liked it from that standpoint, but it's like, okay, every story has to have uh, a, an antagonist as well as the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it was like, it was being, becoming pretty clear that the Klingons aren't the real antagonist here. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not a threat. Uh, they're here for humor. So who is the antagonist? Uh, and it's, you know. It's not as obvious, but I mean, by this point, it seems kind of obvious to me. But they're not coming out and saying it uh, uh, about the Mardelvans and the what the situation. But right. at this point, it's obvious that the Klingons are not the threat here. They're here just for a few yucks. Right. Yeah, and they definitely didn't know anything about the ship. Right. Or at least the Commodore and Claw do not. Yeah. Yeah, and by this point, it's kind of like. And even even the Commodore had said, maybe I've been uh, ignoring the Delvins too much. So obviously, well, they're probably not, the Delvins are probably lying about everything, about uh, conflicts with the Klingons. It sounds like the Klingons are ignoring them. So, mm. anyway. Well, I didn't quite get that yet, but uh, we can talk about that in a minute. Yes, in the next issue. But, you know, there's there's things that are not adding up so far, and they continue to not add up. But right, uh, I, I my my thing with the, the Maldelvi is that the first book it really acted like these people were kind of in the middle of nowhere, very small. You know, they're right. kind of stuck in between Federation and Klingon. Right. Uh, but then once the ship escapes and they're warping away, following it. Yep. These two. Space stations are huge. I mean, one's of them, one of them's on a planet, and one of right. them is just a space station. Right. So that means that they got some pretty hefty uh, technology. They, right, and they obviously and have some a resources. lot of space. I mean, they got a lot. I mean, they're they're not just one little planet or even right. one solar system. I mean, they they've they got a couple of things under there within their little scope of influence. Right. Yeah, but compared to an empire that has dozens and dozens of planets, or the Federation that has, well, I don't know how many planets the Federation is supposed to have, but they got a lot. Right. They're still, yeah, they're not as small as you probably thought at first, but still pretty small compared to uh, a Federation or empire. Right. Well, let's let's go ahead and talk about the X three hundred because there's lots of things to say. But the first thing that I wanted to say that kind of plays off of what we were talking about a few minutes ago is. That ship is is at least portrayed to be very advanced, right? So even more advanced than what the Federation and Klingons can bring to bear, which seems really unlikely. But we will see, won't we? And yes, I completely agree. As soon as I saw it, it was like defiant, defiant. 
<laughs> of course, the Defiant didn't come into the picture until years after this comic book, right? Right, right, yeah, because right. that didn't come out till season three, I think. So it, at least two like years that. after this comic book came out. Right. Yeah. So it really, the idea that you don't have outboard engines, it's more in the hull, Defiant. A small ship with powerful armaments that could take on like a full-size starship, mm-hmm. Defiant. You know, Clo- a lot of it was cloaking device. Cloaking device, exactly. And even uh, the shape itself, to me, looked well, like Defiant. The rough shape of it, completely agree. And when you look at the details of it, there are differences naturally, but the rough shape of it, yes, agreed. I mean, like, and so the front's a little different. So it's kind of, mm-hmm. kind of, the EX300 has kind of like a forked very front. So there's like two mandibles that are going out further, uh, which, if, you know, the Defiant only has the one, uh, like, nose coming out. Mm-hmm. So there are differences. But sure. yes, uh, the silhouette of it is very, very much similar. Right. And this one looks like it's, like, covered in, like, uh, you know, stealth bomber type. Material plating, ah, it's yeah. all sharp angles and right that black color, right. But yeah, that that's what I was getting at. I was like, man, this is this is kind of eerie. How, <laughs> how similar? How similar it is? Well, you know, it wouldn't be the first time we scratched our head and said, hmm, did the guys <laughs> doing the movies or the TV show or whatever, did they read any of these old comics and maybe take a few ideas? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Right. Anyways, good stuff. Yeah, and, and I just gotta say, the Defiant is one of my favorite starships because it makes so much sense what they did. I mean, if you want to have ships that are expressly meant for war to fight against something like the Borg, you know, strip out all the stuff you don't need. We don't need holodecks. We don't need uh science stations we don't need laboratories we don't need our arboretums you know get all that stuff gone and families jeez enterprise d so strip it down to the barely what you need but still beef up the weapons and all those kind of systems and uh, that's what you get you get a smaller ship right yeah it was basically a little millennium falcon It even it, kind because, of because because it all comes back to Star Wars, doesn't it? Exactly. Well, I mean, I I, I I never ever saw the Millennium Falcon in the Defiant. <laughs> I just maybe, want to say maybe that. that's a bad analogy, but I, I've always thought that you know what I thought Star Wars did maybe better than Star Trek was the little warships, the, right. the fighter fighter craft and things like that. Cause yeah, it's one thing to have two big cruisers punching at each each other with you know giant turbo lasers but nah. i would think that you know if instead of the shuttlecraft if you had little fighter craft that would make more sense if you're really at war with somebody right well yeah and i think that comes back to just where gene roddenberry's head right. was no, his head his head was more in battleships as opposed to aircraft carriers so well and that's I what we think- tended to see War wasn't supposed to be the big motivating thing. I mean, it's not. It right. wasn't. You weren't supposed to be at war with anybody. So right. So with, with that being your main thrust of the movie or the TV show, yeah, it, it doesn't make sense why you would have a bunch of fighter pilot fighter 
jets on your plane. Right. Or on your ship. Because you're not looking for trouble. Exactly. Right. Agreed. So, again, in hindsight, when you're a little kid and you're watching Star Trek after you, you know, devoting your whole life to Star Wars, you know, those things kind of pop in your head. <laughs> a Star Destroyer with a bunch of TIE fighters would kick the Enterprise's butt. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> not in your dreams. Oh, come on. Those little fighters would be like fleas. Mm. You know, they, they, they try to get past the shields. They couldn't because they don't have enough firepower to do anything. You're like an itch. And then the Enterprise just uh, targets them and blows them out of the sky. You drop a, a bunch of, you know, bombs. Some some of those TIE bombers would drop on the shields. <laughs> you get in there. Get under the shields. Are we are we actually having a Star Wars versus Star Trek conversation? Yeah, I think if we need to have that conversation uh, offline. I think so. I think so. We'll see you after the episode recording, pal. Okay. But if anybody wants to weigh in on this Star Wars versus Star Trek... Uh, yeah, and, and I'm sure you'll have a new idea that has not been uh, talked about 15 jillion times uh, <laughs> over the interwebs. But, yes. Yeah, shoot us an email. Nah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I definitely got a Trouble with Triples vibe from Scotty when he stated, insult my ship, insult me. Oh, when they're talking about how oh, it's not as powerful yeah. as the, the little one? I, exactly. So how the EX-300 could be that much better than the Enterprise. Right. From a weapons and defensive and whatever capabilities. Scotty wasn't buying it. Yeah, he's also on the Enterprise A, which is kind of crap. What? And, what well, are you talking about? As far as Star Trek V goes, it was it was not in the best of condition. Oh, well. Which this is supposed to take place before Star Trek VI, so. Maybe, but I think it, he's talking about... It was about... only a couple issues ago that he suddenly realized that, oh, I now love the ship as much as I love my original Enterprise. Wasn't that like three issues ago when he got no. taken over by the little tornado the tornado alien <laughs> yeah that was a, that was a good another good episode um yeah 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 but i mean i just general capabilities how good a shape it might be at, at the moment and sure. of course the more advanced designs are supposed to be the excalibur class ships anyway right right you mean the or i mean the excelsior class excelsior. yeah Anyway, you know, at this point, I'm not trusting these guys at all. And Scotty, you're spot on about not not just taking all this at face value. Yeah, but he gets uh, wooed in by the by the the female engineer. He does by the end. Her chili. <laughs> that sounds kind of bad. Uh, he starts uh, he starts falling in line with the how great that ship is once he he has, spends a little, little time with her. Yeah. Actually, you probably should have said more like eating or sushi, but whatever. I mean, she is a fish woman, but She's whatever. A fish woman. <sighs> All right, moving on to something else rather than continuing to sink into the mire. I wrote down my theories about what I was seeing so far. Of course, now looking back in hindsight, I, I, I know in the end what was going on. But these were my theories at the time that I had finished reading the second issue of this story arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so between the conversations between... Via and the Brigadier, towards the end of the issue, we know that the Mar- uh, Mardelvans are trying to ma- manipulate Kirk and the Federation into destroying the X-300 and whoever's aboard. Okay. 
So my theories, as of now, were number one, the rebels did not steal the AX-300 at all. The government government pilots did. Okay, and, okay so that, this is my theory, and I'm not adjusting it for now that I know really what happened. The government wants Kirk to destroy the AX-300 before they find out the truth about it, whatever that truth is. And basically I'm saying that I think it's basically not the technological marvel that the Mardelvins say it is. I'm not sure, but I think they want to use that as a ticket into the Federation or something. You, yeah, you, you want this great technology? Well, you got to rubber stamp our mission into the Federation. That's my theory. And uh-huh. you need to help us suppress the rebels. That's, that was my theory on what was going on. Um, anyway. Interesting theories. Interesting. Some prove correct, some prove not, as we will find out. Yes. So shall we find out? I just have one last comment. Oh, okay. Sorry. But it isn't really about the story. So towards the end of the comic, there is an ad for The Dark Half, or Dark Half is the title of it. It's a movie, apparently. George Romero created it, and it's based on a Stephen King book. And I just wanted to say, I've never heard of the book, and I've never heard of the movie. Did you see that movie? Yeah, I saw it at the theater. Okay. So how was it? Was it was it good? Uh, was it mad? Uh, I saw it at the theater in 1993. Okay. And I've never wanted to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Okay, so I didn't miss much. It okay. was meh. It wasn't bad. I remember not thinking that... I remember thinking that it wasn't a horrible movie. Right. But it's not one you would ever want to see again. Okay. It's basically about a, a uh, he has like a twin or something, and it's uh, or he thinks he has a twin. I can't remember. It's one of those kind of doesn't really make sense. Heavy things. psychological kind of things. Yeah. Plus, I was in high school, and I, maybe maybe some of it was still a little more sophisticated. Or yeah. Tried to be. Or you know, I was more used to straightforward horror type stuff. So right. Maybe I do need to watch it again. Uh, yeah. But I remember thinking that it was one of the you know, you took a Stephen King book, you made it into a so-so movie. Right. And, and I've read a lot of Stephen King books, but I would never say that I've read them all. <laughs> and obviously I'm not familiar with them all because I never heard of this one. Right. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's go on to 48. All right, let's do it. So issue number 48 is simply titled Deceptions, Part 3. It is an early June 1993 published date. The folks that put it out are exactly the same, so I will not repeat them. The cover shows Klingon Commander Claw and Kirk toe-to-toe and ready to rumble. Kirk has his right fist raised, and Claw has his diktok knife ready to thrust. A Klingon banner forms the backdrop to the confrontation. Kirk looks pathetically overmatched by the younger, muscly Klingon who was armed with a knife. And while Kirk is just barehanded. The story opens with a bloody and sweating Kirk on a fiery Enterprise bridge. He's on the view screen of Claw's bird of prey while surrendering. Claw accepts the surrender, but gives the gift of destruction to his nemesis. The already damaged Enterprise takes three photon torpedo hits and blows up totally. Claw throws his hand into the air with delight and is summarily kicked out of bed by his wife slash first officer Vixus. He was dreaming again of defeating Kirk totally, and she is sick of it. Claw admits to being haunted by Kirk. Vixus tells him to have patience, my love. Meanwhile, 
Chekhov is on an uninhabited heavenly body where another Mardelvin outpost has been destroyed. Supposedly this is the third outpost to be destroyed by insurgents piloting the deadly EX-300. In a meeting room, Brigadier Garad is pushing to destroy the EX-300 the minute it is found before it enters Klingon space. McCoy is against it. Kirk is in the middle, but is willing to attack it if the situation is right. The bridge reports the EX-300 has been located close to Klingon space. They go to the bridge. The argument continues there, but Kirk ends it by saying he agrees with the Brigadier. Kirk orders yellow alert and shields up. As the Enterprise closes in on the EX-300 slowly, Claw watches their every move from the cloaked bird of prey. As they come closer, Chekhov exclaims the EX-300 has no life forms aboard it. Meanwhile, in the cave, Spock asks Savik about her apparent preoccupation with something. She tells him she is disturbed about settling accounts given their near-death crash and possible death yet in the Mardelvin wilderness. She comes out and says she felt a bond between Spock since his pawn far on the Genesis planet. Spock responds logically and says he feels a bond for Savik too. He ends the conversation saying time and circumstances beyond their control will define the nature of their mutual bonds. Their lips were so close. Suddenly, a Mardelvin ship lands very close to them. It turns out to be a rebel ship. The rebels take them hostages as bargaining chips. Back on the Enterprise, that is alongside the abandoned EX-300 prototype, Kirk is asking why the Rebels abandoned the ship this close to Klingon space. Vaya offers the explanation that the ship malfunctioned and they had no choice but to abandon it. It is a prototype after all. It was not designed to do all this. Scotty is surprised by her suddenly calling into question her ship. Scotty volunteers to beam over to the EX-300 with Vaya and check it out. The EX-300, that is. She agrees, saying that would be a logical next step. The brigadier thinks to himself, what is she up to? Later, as Vaya is packing her tools, she includes a gun and says she will take care of things when they reach the EX-300. The brigadier is not convinced at first, but he is a believer when Vala discharges her gun close to his head. She is handy with a gun. On the EX-300, Vala tells Scotty the automated engine shutdown safeguards kicked in when they had no reason to. A lucky break for them. She says she was able to restart the engines without too much trouble at all. Chekhov reports to Scotty his security sweep is complete. There is no sign of the rebels now, or even any sign that they were ever aboard. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk and company are discussing the situation with Garad and Vala. The Brigadier says there is no reason why they cannot start the EX-300 engines back up and with the Enterprise's escort take the ship back to Mardelva. The automated systems can get the ship home. Kirk says he will make the decision in the morning whether they will implement Garad's proposal. The Brigadier says it's a Mardelvin ship, and Kirk has no say in the matter. Kirk says he has all the say when it comes to the safety of the Enterprise and her crew. Kirk no longer trusts the Brigadier and ends the discussion.
Later, Valia and Gerard have a discussion as to why all those people had to die on the three outposts. The brigadier says, in struggles for survival, prices must be paid. Meanwhile, Kirk and Scotty meet and prepare to beam over to the EX-300 in civilian clothes. Back on Mardelva, the rebel ship Spock's party is being held in comes under attack by government forces. The rebel ship goes down, but Spock and company are able to overpower the guards and get to a life pod that ejects from the ship before the crash. The next morning, aboard the EX-300, Scotty and Vaya are going over a system check before they attempt to restart the engines. Vaya wants to skip the system check and just start the engines, but Scotty insists on the systems check. On the Enterprise, the Brigadier is wondering what is taking Vaya so long. An hour later, Scotty tells Vaya he found a concealed self-destruction sequence programmed to go off at the end of the engine restart program. He turns to her as she shoots him. She tells Scotty the paralyzing effects of the gun will wear off soon, but not before the EX-300 blows up with him on board. Scotty asks why she is doing this, and Valia obliges by saying the Federation will blame the explosion on the Klingons and finally take action to protect Mardelva from the Klingons. Valia radios the brigadier and tells him to trigger the backup detonator. Do it now! He wishes her well and thumbs an actuator on the communication device. However, nothing happens. Valia is confused and angry. Why has she not been blown to atoms? On the Enterprise, Chekhov enters the Brigadier's room and arrests him for conspiracy to blow up the EX-300. The signal he just sent from the comm unit is all the evidence they need. In sickbay, McCoy is taking care of Scotty, who is still recovering from Vaya's attack. They discuss how Vaya's confession solved several mysteries. She programmed the EX-300 to carry out the three attacks all on its own. Kirk enters the room and congratulates Scotty on finding and disarming the EX-300 self-destruct system. Scotty says the sting they executed to catch the Brigadier in the act was pure genius. As the final loose end, Kirk asks Uhura to open hailing frequencies. She does so, and he addresses Claw, apologizing for not giving him a reason to shoot. Maybe next time, have a nice day. McCoy asks how Kirk can be sure Claw is still out there. Kirk confidently says, He is out there, Bones. In space, no one can hear you scream. At least normally that's the case, but in this case, Claw can be heard shouting to Kirk, Kirk, you task me. The end. He didn't actually say task me, but I thought I thought. And they also didn't quote alien there. Well, no, I did. <laughs> I threw the whole thing in. Anyway. So the so, you uh, task me, that's a uh, Star Trek 3 reference? Uh, that, uh, two. That is definitely a con reference. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Kirk, you task me. Well, the way you said it, I thought that it was, uh, you know, Reverend Jim. Oh, no. did I sound like Reverend Jim? Damn, I was definitely not going for that. Ah, <laughs> <clears throat> oh, Kirk, you task me. That's what it would sound like if there I was going for go. Reverend Jim. Okay, and now I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so uh, which of your little theories was right? Well, some were right. The Mardelvans definitely were trying to manipulate the situation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the rebels were not on the ship, but I thought there were uh, government pilots on the ship. But it turns out no government pilots on the ship. It was all automated, which is pretty impressive. Full ship automation, you know, like that. Right. Uh, from a technology standpoint. And yeah, uh, I wasn't a hundred percent sure about all the motivations because I thought they were trying to get help against the. I thought the Mar- Mardelvin government was trying to get help against the rebels from the Federation. But it sounds like from what what Valya said at the end, it was actually they wanted them involved to protect them against the Klingons, which is interesting because supposedly the Klingons really were kind of ignoring them. Right. Uh, at least according to the uh, the Commodore. So it's like, eh, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, it was a little confusing as to the motivations of the rebels. Oh, the rebels. Well, I mean, yeah. everybody had fuzzy. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think the fuzziest thing was the Mar- Mardelvin government for me. Right. So. But I mean, they they captured Spock and. Savic. They're going to hold them as bargaining chips. Right. Oh, I and see. Then, okay, yeah. Then they all, and they all blow up. Well, it was just... but that wasn't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that... Yeah, but that doesn't question the motives of the rebels. It just... Well, what, what were they planning the Federation to do? Start helping them with what? Uh, I thought they were using them as bargaining chips against the government to get the government to back off. As opposed, you know, so more using them as bargaining chips against the government as opposed to in something that they wanted the Federation to do. That's what I thought, but they really didn't say for sure. Yeah, right. They don't say. Right. So you're kind of left to, okay, so we want the rebels to take Spock and company because we want there to be more concern over what happens with them. We want more, you know, more stuff going on here. Oh, right. what's going to happen to them now? So, well, okay, well, well the rebels take them. Let's not explain it too much. Leave it to people's <laughs> imaginations, but uh, yeah. We need to right. spice things up right about here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I thought it was a little odd the way they wrapped it all up. Yeah. Well, Anyways. yeah, and and definitely I think that Weinstein is a, is a good writer. Mm-hmm. It's just that something that I've seen in more than one of his story arcs, and even recently, is that as you go through the through the whole three or four issues, whatever it happens to be, it's like it doesn't. <laughs> what they say at the first issue doesn't always hold true and hold water by the end of the third issue. <laughs> but maybe he's just kind of hoping people will kind of not notice. I don't know, but right. So a little yeah, bit of that I, here too. Well, plus you got to remember these these books came out, you know, a month apart each. Well, these only two weeks, but I think. You can get away with a lot of that in in older comic books because you didn't necessarily going to read several issues in one setting always. You know what I mean? Oh, I see. There's more time in between. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So you can you can forget some of the little details. Right. Or at least when I was a kid, I always did. Yeah. So it's not until reading them all here together that I'm like, hey, that doesn't make sense. Good point. Good point. Hey, what about uh? Yeah. Well. Yep. So uh, I thought it was odd that at first the rescuer of Spock's party, the rebels, mm-hmm. were were kind of friendly at first. I mean, they even said the the first words out of his mouth was, what, I think it was a hi or something, hi, you know, <laughs> and it's like, okay, <laughs> you guys seem kind of friendly. 
<laughs> for for rebels, <laughs> you know, you know, armed rebels. But yeah. Oh yeah, he says hello. We were hoping to find you first. Oh, there you go. Right, hello. You know, it's kind of like when uh, when Nero uh, first addresses <laughs> uh, people. All right. Yeah, especially when he when he's talking to Pike at first. Hello. You know, I forgot exactly what he said, but very. <laughs> I don't you know, think it was hello. <laughs> it was, no, but it was very. Toodaloo. <laughs> I'm Nero. It was something like that. I mean, I, I'm I'm exaggerating to make a point, but it was very non-villainous. You know? Right. Yeah. No, I, was... I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. Because Nero well... Nero's originally a minor. He's not a uh, you know a villain by by trade. Although by this point he had gone through a long period of time after he had turned to the dark side. But whatever. Anyway, back to this issue. What does he say? Now, I know what you're talking about. I'm just trying to think of the exact... Was I, it Hello, I, I Captain, don't... or...? It, it, the tone of his voice is very familiar. You right. Know? It's very, you know, a little on the friendly side, casual, definitely not, oh, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, he's so, like, hello, I'm... It's like something... I'm well, Nero. I'm Nero. Right. Okay. Oh, hi, hi, Nero. How are you? <laughs> Long time no see. Don't blow me up. <laughs> With your big-ass ship. Exactly. Right. Anyway. Yeah, anyways. I, I see what you're saying. I thought that threw me off a little bit. Uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering when, when, when Vaya discharged her gun, mm-hmm. uh, when she was getting ready to go to the EX-300. I mean, doesn't doesn't the Enterprise have internal sensors that can pick that kind of stuff up? I thought, or was that it was an Enterprise D? I don't know, but you know. Well, no, there there was an episode of Enterprise A could do it too. Okay, fine. Because there was that's even a plot point in Star Trek Six when they're talking about maybe getting rid of those boots, and somebody could have just disintegrated them, and they, I think Vallis shoots a pot of boiling water or something, and then all the alarms go off. Right. That's it. That's the reference. Right. So. Internal sensors are going to pick up that kind of thing. Which but this kind of is sense, a but... paralyzing beam and not a phaser. Okay, but it's it's a directed energy weapon doing something. <laughs> so, anyway. I'm just giving them benefit of a doubt. It's paralyzing okay. beam. Paralyzing beam, which is completely, you know, that it's not scanning for that. The scanners aren't looking for that. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, you can shoot uh, a, a I, rifle in there too, and nobody will bat an eye because because it doesn't pick up bullets either. Right. And, and I could see that any directed energy weapon mm-hmm. would be something that could be picked up by the sensors. I mean, come on. It's like in a normal room, nothing's going on. La, da, 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 da. Then all of a sudden, uh, a beam of directed energy. You know, that's a big difference. You'd think sensors would pick up on that, but who knows? Right. This is all made up anyway, isn't it? Uh, no, it's real. real. Oh, Didn't you cool. get the memo? Cool. Anyway, uh, let's see. Yeah, so I was figuring the internal sensor should have kicked in, and at the very least, Chekhov should have been informed, even if it isn't an out loud alarm, like they had an in and, and, uh, Star Trek 6. At least some kind of a, you know, a log is made. Uh, <laughs> it brings it up to Chekhov's attention. But. Right. And and I will say that I think they do, do kind of give him some some action, or at least seems like he's competent at his job in this one. I thought. 
Except right. maybe that part. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, they he he's the guy who goes down to the planet and checks things out, apparently alone. Well, I mean, or maybe with a with a landing party without any other uh, officers there. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Um, and then you know he he's waiting to get evidence from the brigadier that that yes. something's up. Yep. And I don't know. Annie yeah. actually on the on the ship scanning it and. Like I said, I just thought they gave him stuff to do, and what they gave exactly. him to do made sense and, and made it seem like right. he was competent at his job, which they yep. don't always do with him. Right. He was very uh, proactive, and he uh, he did things that made sense, given his role. Right. Very Odo-like or Worf-like. Not Yar-like? Yar? Uh, yeah, I guess Yar-like. <laughs> It's just Yar, Yar wasn't wasn't there that long. I don't always think of her that much. Right, uh, I was kidding. Although she was very cute. She's the cutest security officer, clearly. Really, cutest? Yeah. The cu- Oh, you Worf? Oh, you like Worf? What about Mr. Reed? <laughs> no, sorry, no. Malcolm? No. no. Yeah, I know. No, no, no. I'm not doing it for me. All right, I'll give you Yar then. Ah, uh, good, because <laughs> she's clearly the cutest. So you say because you're male. No, well, come on. Well, okay. I'm not quite sure how ladies would take it. Maybe they go for Malcolm, but I mean, just just thinking generally speaking, she's a she's a handsome woman. Most of the most of the women I talk that like Star Trek, uh, they love Worf. There you go. There you go. I mean, so they find him attractive. They find him attractive. Those teeth, those ridges. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. It's hard to uh, shut him up about him. Oh, boy. Okay. There you go. Uh, anyway. Oh, did you did you read the <clears> – there was a brief article I read where Worf was saying – or Michael Dorn was saying in an interview that he's pitched an idea for a new Star Trek TV series where uh, Worf is the main character and he's, you know – He's in charge of some ship. He's captain of a ship that's going out and doing something, whatever. And right. he, the feedback he's getting from the people he's been pitching it to has been very more positive than he expected. Right, so. but uh, it's such a waste of time. To, I mean, that's never going to happen. Well, he, it does say in the article, you know, all that stuff going on with the movies and whatever deals that Abrams has with Paramount or whatever. That's all out there, but I had to kind of when I pitched this idea, I had to like not worry about that bit of it. Right. But in the end, I think you're right. They're probably not gonna. They're probably not well, gonna make the mistake of uh, killing the golden goose again. Well, but. Tim Russ is out doing doing the same thing, trying to. Oh, Tim Russ is. Okay. Yeah, and I think he's actually taking it one step forward, and he's hitching his wagon up to the Phase Two guys. And oh, really? Yeah, he's. They're making some sort of Tuvok-centric fan-made movie now. Oh, cool. I mean, it's just like. Yeah, but mm. but he wants to pitch that as a new TV series. Yeah, uh, he w- Yeah, or he's gonna make it himself as a fan-made series. Yeah. Well. But I, I don't. I don't, I don't see him them, doing too much other other stuff. Lately. I'd rather them do something like Shatner did, and just if you if you really think you have stories, then write a novel. Yeah. You know. A novel is a little easier to 
accept as being a different continuity than a fan-made TV show or, yeah, a, you know, it's, I don't know. Well, I, I don't, I don't watch the fan-made TV show, so I don't know how good a quality they are, but they're not, you know, they're not, they're not real. You know, they're not, they're, they're not licensed. <laughs> they're not licensed, so you can't, I don't know. Well, yeah. I'm, it, I'm not, it, not explaining it very well, right? Yeah. But I just, I, I can't get into that, whereas if it was a novel, I'd probably be like, oh, well, at least it's sanctioned by, you know, the powers that be, so I'll give it a read. Right. Yep. Anyways, uh, so this is the one where it has Claw and Vixus in bed, and she kicks him out of bed because he dreams about destroying the Enterprise. Exactly, and she's sick of it. Yeah, so that, and then again at the end of the of the issue where where Kirk's doing the little radio broadcast, kind of like the Roadrunner to uh, Claw's Wiley Coyote, at the end, it's kind of, bye! Couldn't catch me this time. Beep, beep! And, uh, yeah. So, definitely at this point, you really take, can't take Klaus seriously. No. I think he no. shows back up, though. You know, he's been showing... He has showed up in a larger number of Star Trek issues than I would have ever expected. Right. Because the first time he popped... You liked him a lot in Star Trek V. That's cool. I, I didn't even know who he was when I first saw it. And that's partially because I really haven't seen Star Trek V that often. That right. many times. So you reminded me who he even was. So it's it's interesting. I mean, I guess it's right for the time period. I mean, this is the Klingon nemesis that would be around in this time period. But eh, I, I'm just not that impressed with him. Mm. I guess they can't all be Kangs and Reverend Jims. <laughs> can't all be winners. <laughs> I think Kang was really good. Uh, yeah. He... All right, I don't have any more notes on this, so I'm neither, neither just spinning my wheels. Okay, so let's let's just wrap this up. So before we close up, I I teased at the beginning about that blonde girl in the navigation station. Uh, Helm. Uh, okay. Helm station. Right, right. And uh, issue number forty-six. Okay. So I meant to mention it in when we were reviewing forty-seven. On page 9, issue 47, page okay. 9. I am navigating to it. Right. Uh, there's the scene where Kirk is talking to Admiral Yankowski. Okay. Doesn't Yankowski look like the that woman? Oh, yeah. And, and the girl that's at the helm station is now... A yellow-haired girl, or kind of a... Well, a different color, anyway. Orange hair. Right. Yeah, kind of. It's the same color as her, as her uh, turtleneck. Right, right. Right, and that... And yeah, she's on page 9, too. So she looks like... Like a younger version of... Yankowski. I agree. Because now I'm looking at Yankowski at the very bottom... Uh, of page 9, as you said... And there's a pretty good picture of her, and she's got a little crow's feet going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, you're right; she does look a lot like that uh, that helmsman from the first issue. Daughter, uh, maybe? Who knows? I don't know. And then I thought, well, they actually mention her name, so am I supposed to know that name? No. And I, I could not remember. <clears throat> nah. They need to mention a name, so they just Yankowski. Perfect. Go with Great. that. 
Okay. All right. So that's all I was going to bring up. Cool. Well, right. uh, overall, I think a good story arc. Yep. Uh, yep. Not perfect, but it's nope. pretty good. I do like it. But I'm, I'm, I'm afraid Claw will forever be a comic foil for me. Well, yeah. And, you know, unlucky in love, because every time he's in bed, she kicks him out. And every time he's, <laughs> you know, about to get busy, they decide to eat. So Yeah, they get the munchies. What is this? I don't know. Because <laughs> wasn't there another issue that Peter David did where they were about to uh, uh, get friendly and he's called to the bridge and it shows him running out of the door trying to put his boot on while she runs past him or something like that? Yeah, yeah I remember something like that, right? Yeah. So he's it's kind of been a running joke with him right. and her. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> before we uh, close up, you, there was three books that came out during this time. Cool. I have not read any of them, but I'll just kind of tell you the names and uh, what what series they were in. So in May 1993, there was a next generation novel called The Romulan Prize by Simon Hawk. Uh, it has to deal with Romulans. <laughs> uh, it looks like there's a, a special planet that they're trying, both the Romulans and the Federation are trying to get to or get the deadly secrets from. Okay. Also that month, there was a Deep Space Nine novel, the second one, called The Siege by a author named Peter David. Mm, never heard of him. You've heard, never heard of him? Nah. Yeah, me either. <laughs> this one I might might go back and look look at. Cool. Peter David. He, he's never written a bad one yet. <laughs> and then uh, June 1993, uh, an original series novel based during the original five-year mission called Windows on a Lost World by V.E. Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And let's see. Strange device that appears to be a window. But the mysterious windows prove to be more than they seem when Kirk, Chekhov, and two security guards enter them and disappear. Ooh. Find themselves trapped in an alien environment and must fight with all their strength to survive and keep their sanity. Oh, so. sounds like a lot of conflict, a lot of Absolutely. action. I don't know. Sounds like the Guardian of Forever to me, except ah. time travel. But uh, except ni- except for 1930s Earth, it's right. uh, the strange world. So speaking of Guardian of Forever, yes, uh, here pretty soon in the series, we are going to get a little taste of the Guardian of Forever. Oh, so if I remember remember correctly and and i don't always do there's going to be a multi-part series arc that that the guardian of forever is going to play a part in cool so something to look forward to all right all right so uh next issue or next episode 98 we will be doing the next generation episode actually this was 98 so 99 wait a minute where are no, hold on it's it's the same issues but so it's uh 46 through 48 yeah, but what in, episode uh, next is this one this is episode 96. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, so episode 97, we'll do the next generation, 46 through 48. Right. Sounds good. All right, and, so... And in preparation for next week, I just want to point out a very similar next-gen cover to what we saw for uh, Taz on on issue 48. So issue 48 cover, look at it. Uh-huh. And we'll see something rather similar in next-gen world next week. 
Well, I look forward to it. You should. So it looks like 48. And then 48's cover. He's where, fighting Claw. Where Claw's Kirk back is, in the next generation? <laughs> you, you, you could interpret what I said that way, but you would be wrong. Oh. <laughs> what, what episode of Next Gen was it? Uh, what issue? Yeah. You need to wait till next week. Oh, it's a teaser. It's a teaser. <laughs> it's a taser. You know, you, we want him to come back next week, you know? All right, yeah, good job. Okay. All right, so take care, everybody, and talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.